She is a really remarkable woman. And uh, um, I'm just going to tell you a little bit about her background. She was born in Tehran uh, in 1963. She, uh, um, her family, her parents, her mother was a Roman Catholic, her father uh, a Muslim. Um, they were a very uh, um, prominent Persian family, um, uh, you know, going back historically and, and, and uh, uh, being sort of movers and shakers um, in Iranian society. And uh, when uh, the, there was the ousting of the Shah of Iran, um, uh, Camilla's father, who was a, a very eminent doctor and who has served in the palace, um, was one of the people who was uh, persona non grata, and so they really had to flee for their lives. And uh, at that time, uh, she was uh, a child, she was uh, 11, and she's in fact been living in England since she was 11. I, I think that before that, when there were indications of, uh, of problems in Iran, she was sent to school, in fact, in Switzerland when she was something like nine. She was found to be profoundly dyslexic and uh, had real problems with her own learning. And she said it made her watchful, it meant that she learned and developed um, uh, antennae for other children's pain. She was, um, uh, and I think, you know, said even at an early stage that she uh, developed some uh, thoughts about what she wanted to do with her life, which was to work with people who were in some way damaged. Um, she, I met her. Um, I, I think probably um, something like 15 years ago, so probably in the mid-90s. And um, I was introduced to her, um, funnily enough, by Ruby Wax. I knew Ruby uh, and had known Ruby since we were young. And she had been uh, acting with the Royal Shakespeare Company and, uh, and we had, you know, friends in common and, and so on. And, uh, and so I'd known uh, Ruby from that time. And uh, it was Ruby who phoned me and said, you have to meet this incredible woman who's working with children on, underneath the arches in Camberwell. She set up this uh, place where they can go, you know, where she basically um, looks after them. Children who are in really dysfunctional homes, children who've been sexually abused, kids who have been used as runners for, for uh, um, you know, sort of little drugs mafias in South London, children with the parents of really, whose parents were really um, uh, often drug addicts but totally dysfunctional and where the children were often profoundly neglected. And she provided a space and a, a place of respite for those children and worked with them. She was a trained, uh, she was a trained psychotherapist, but one of her main areas of interest what became about neuroscience, about the functioning of the brain. She started with, because of watching and working with these children, she began to feel that there were uh, ways in which they had not learned empathy, that somehow in the early development of these children there had been something that had been missing, kind of attention and, and loving attention um, had not been there and that she wondered if it had actually affected their own development in ways that were, were, were um, actually physiological as well as, as, well as psychological. And uh, so she then started uh, 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 doing, I think, a master's herself in uh, uh, neuroscience. And so uh, tonight I think some of her work is going to be about um, the ways in which she um, feels that these damaged children are still, there's still something that can be done. Even a damaged brain, where the frontal lobes have not developed and where their empathy is not developed, if they are treated and loved and cared for, it, treated in a, in a way in which uh, they've not been used to, if they are uh, given um, affection and love, you actually, the brain is so plastic that um, before a certain age, probably sometime in your early 20s, if enough work is done, that you can retrieve much of the damage um, of early childhood. So she's been doing remarkable work and she's got, um, I mean, this charity, Kids Company, um, operates um, some incredible street level uh, projects in um, centres in Southwark and Lambeth and Camden. And, uh, and she works along with 41 inner city schools. And uh, there's a question of ruling it out um, uh, nationally and she'll talk about all of that. Um, I think the thing that's so remarkable about her is that she, she basically, her skills are that she can talk to anybody and she's got the support of so many people um, and uh, she's received now many different awards 
from being the business woman of the year because she's managed to run this thing and, uh, and make it work. And there were lessons for people in the business world about how you could do set something up from the beginning and make it work. But also, um, many awards were basically for being a wonderful social entrepreneur, a wonderful uh, uh, role model to, to, to all of us about how you can make a difference in the lives of the most deprived in our communities. So she really is extraordinary. She's a very colourful character, as you will see, and for any of you who've met her or seen her will know. Um, when I met her, um, uh, you can't help but just you know, fall in, in under a spell. And she really is amazing. Um, I, uh, over the years since, I've often done things with her and helped um, her in different, um, in different ways, and she's helped me um, with different projects of mine. Um, one of the things that um, Ruby would say about her is that she helped Ruby uh, to, to really make a kind of career change in many ways for herself. And then Ruby went back to university, studied neuroscience, and is in fact doing a master's in neuroscience at Kelly's Kellogg College, Oxford, even as we speak. So um, uh, she's affected many people's lives in many different ways. She, um, the school that she went to, in fact, shared one, and uh, uh, she will talk to you um, about uh, how she was the total oddball when she was at school. Um, as she says, she really couldn't operate um, if it weren't for the fact that there's new technology now that helps her because she is so profoundly dyslexic. Um, but uh, she really is uh, an amazing woman. So I wanted you all to know that before she arrives and then we can speed her in and get her to start uh, right away. And my story that I, someone said to me, tell us one of your stories. And uh, um, the only story that I can tell you, that, that, well, I can tell you two stories related to Camilla. One is that um, I, when I went to see her the first time, and, and Ruby but Wax was there, and I went in, uh, Ruby was walking around with a very little girl who was about four, um, and, uh, and the little girl was holding Ruby's hand, and uh, she obviously had very real problems, this kid. And, uh, and eventually she said uh, to Ruby, about me, is that your mummy? <laughs> and, um, and Ruby has dined out on this ever since. <laughs> <laughs> much to my chagrin. And, uh, and, uh, and then um, the other thing about Camilla was that because she's so remarkable, I, uh, I was once uh, asked when I was chairing the British Council um, to, um, to create a programme for the Queen of Jordan who was coming. And here, here, here's Camilla now. And I'm, I'm telling the story. I'm actually, I've already introduced you. And I'm about to tell the story about how I had to decide, I had to put a program together for the Queen of Jordan. And, uh, and I decided that you would be the star piece of that, uh, of that day's program. And we took her down to underneath the arches in Camberwell. And she was met by you, the Queen of Southampton. <laughs> and, and I think that she, her, her jaw didn't really kind of close uh, for, for the two hours that she was down there. And she did end up playing table tennis with some of the roughest boys in Camberwell. Some of those, those gun-toting boys ended up playing, playing table tennis with the Queen of, of Jordan. Uh, it was a great afternoon that we had. Anyway, can I welcome to you the woman I've been telling you all about? <laughs> Camilla Batman here. children. It has 600 staff, 11,000 volunteers, and the way we operate is we work in 40 schools across London, 
where in each school we put a team of workers made up of usually a social worker, a highly trained psychotherapist, um, sometimes a mental health worker, and then another psychotherapist who supports them. So about three workers. And then around that team we build up a whole team of trainees, trainee psychotherapists, occupational therapists, uh, artists, musicians, anyone who has anything to contribute to children. And that whole team stay in that school and allow the children to self-refer for support whenever they want to. So in one secondary school in South London, we're currently seeing 400 children, all of whom have child protection issues, and we have 48 workers working in that particular school. And then the other bit of our program is we've got these street-level centres that are open seven days a week from 9 o'clock in the morning until 10 o'clock at night. And children come off the streets, self-refer to our provision, and we do everything we can to support them. On the premises are a mixture of psychiatrists, social workers, artists, musicians, youth workers, occupational therapists, but everyone is referred to as workers, and they're all playing pool, having dinner with the kids, engaging in activities, and it's a sort of ongoing care relationship over a period of time. So some of the earlier kids have been with us seven, eight years, and we function very much like substitute parents in their lives, seeing them through their development. The kind of statistics that I began with 16 years ago have not changed. We have continuously had a number of independent <coughs> evaluators working alongside us, including University of London, the Anna Freud Clinic, uh, UCL, we've had the Institute of Psychiatry, currently we've got Cambridge, and we've also had Oxford. So historically, Kids Company has been intensively evaluated as we've gone along all the time. So the data that I'm about to share with you in relation to the kind of children who present with us comes from the cumulative research that has happened on our premises. 84% of the children arrive homeless. Of those who are living at home, a third don't have a bed to sleep on. So they're sleeping on the floor, sometimes putting cardboard boxes on top of each other. 18% of the children who arrive don't have underpants. They just don't possess one. 16% don't have any socks. 87% have psychiatric and emotional difficulties, usually along autistic spectrum disorders, um, high anxiety, depression, self-harm. 81% of the children are addicted to substances and they describe 90% of them, their immediate parents and family members getting them on drugs. So these are not kids who are out there partying uh, and being introduced to substances. And then 82% are criminally involved. Most recently, the research showed that one in five of the children had been shot at and or stabbed, with one in four of their immediate family members shot at and or stabbed. Incidents of having been sexually abused is 13 times more than controls in the neighborhood. So we're dealing with a cohort of children who are exceptionally vulnerable but they are representatives of a hidden reality uh, in the ghettos of Britain. It's not, in, you know, we're not talking about war zones, but we are talking about children now in these areas who have access to firearms. When I first started 16 years ago, it was guaranteed that the firearm was in the hands of the drug dealer, and I expected the kids to have knives on them but now the firearms are in the hands of 13, 14, and 15-year-olds. And I am seeing, actually, eight and nine-year-olds being recruited into the drug trade 
and being forced as couriers to participate in it. And most recently, the Children's Commissioner released a report of um, endemic sexual abuse of girls in gangs, which interestingly enough, had not turned up as an issue when uh, the, the child protection reviews had been done by Eileen or by uh, um, the Klimbian report, i.e. we've had two significant child protection reviews where there's not been a line mentioned about the fact that children are being significantly harmed in street gangs in this country. And I would argue that actually in terms of numbers, the numbers of children being sexually and physically abused in street gangs is now more than children being abused within the family context or in the hands of pedophiles. So there is a hidden, unspoken challenge that is out there for vulnerable children. Where does this fit in nationally? Nationally, there are about 1.5 million children who are being significantly harmed in this country. And this is the international figure for Britain. Uh, the government doesn't admit to this type of figure. However, if you actually look at uh, the numbers of children who were referred to child protection in the last 11 years, you will notice that pre-Baby Peter's uh, significant sort of death, uh, there was about 550,000 children who were referred to child protection every year. The year after his death, that number rose to 670,000. But 670,000 are referred to the child protection system about 400,000 receive an assessment. And then if you look down the line, only 49,000 children end up having some kind of a child protection plan. In between, depending on the social work department and what borough it's in, some children may receive some form of assistance, but it's not compulsory, it's not necessarily structured, However, those that end up with a child protection plan, they have to receive a social worker, and a social worker has to meet with them regularly. In reality, this doesn't happen because a lot of social workers are under-resourced. But interestingly enough, if you look at this list of 49,000 children who have been described as being at significant risk, almost all these children are taken off this register within a year, leaving in the second year only 2,700 children on this register who were first put on it. And if you look a little bit more carefully, you will notice that 26% of those children who were taken off this register had to go back on it within a year because they were prematurely deregistered. And the reason I'm sharing this with you is to give you an understanding that out there is the assumption that all children who are vulnerable, and we made a law called the Children's Act, and we said in it that any child who's being emotionally abused, physically abused, sexually abused, or neglected must receive substantial help. But in reality, this doesn't happen. What happens is that social work departments who are under-resourced are having to set thresholds of intake because demand outweighs resources. And there are some unforgiving decisions in some local authorities. We're aware of some local authorities having discussions behind closed doors about letting in children for protection who, for example, have had experiences of penetrative sex but not oral sex or touching, or children who are aged under 10 who are being left without food but not over 10s, because the assumption is that a child over the age of 10 is more likely to be able to shoplift or get criminally involved and be able to meet their needs for food. And consequently, what happens 
is that social work departments take in what they can and they have to, and they leave behind what they can't cope with outside their doors. And then when Ofsted comes to inspect, it only gets to inspect what's arrived inside the door, and doesn't, there is absolutely no measure of what's been left outside the doors of our social care agencies and our mental health agencies. And what I know is that very, very significant leaders in a lot of these agencies come to see me privately. And what they say is that they've lost their ability to tell the truth about how bad the situation is because they're in a sort of double bind where they've got to present their agencies as being successful. They can't describe the difficulties of having left lots of children without care or inadequate care. And then these professionals feel that their Hippocratic Oath is being compromised, but at the same time, as one consultant psychiatrist said to me, I'm an economic slave, Camilla. I have two daughters and a mortgage, and I can't speak up. And there's this feeling that if they do speak up, they're likely to be penalized. There is this notion that because they have been appointed by local politicians, that if they speak up about how difficult the situation is, that the local politicians will also be compromised. When we have inquiries, inquiries are coming from the very department using the very personnel that often these workers on the ground have had to present rosy pictures to. Therefore, they are left in a situation whereby they can't then say, actually, these are the challenges because then they would have to acknowledge that they were unable to tell the truth in the first place. And please don't take this as a criticism of either the agencies or the workers. My intention here is to simply show you a systemic challenge that is continuing to betray the children and the workers within these agencies. Because what you get is suddenly agencies that are very stressed, workers that, who feel that they are not able to do the job as well as they'd like to, the worker feels shamed as there is a discrepancy between the quality they want to deliver and their poor delivery. And in this gap is the gap of personal shame where the worker can't reconcile with themselves why they've ended up in this situation. And as a result, some workers leave the profession, some workers shut down their feelings because they just can't cope with the pain of going to work every day knowing that they are not doing as well as they'd like to. And other workers sort of become immune and over-familiar with abuse and neglect. Hence, you get Rochdale police and social services turning around to 12-year-old girls who have been pimped and forced into prostitution and, and call it a lifestyle choice. And it's in this context that I'd like to present uh, a reframing, uh, maybe a necessity to think about things slightly differently, uh, a challenge ahead of us for us to consider as to whether we need to address this issue of vulnerable children in this country in a way that is more meaningful. At the moment, our interventions are organized uh, according to the administrative departments we've created. So we've got health, education, social care, housing, leisure, and then our expectation is that the child will be chopped up according to their various needs, and that particular need matched to that particular department. So the mental health need of that child gets taken to mental health, the social care need of that child gets taken to social care. That kind of model works if you have a good broker, whether it's a parent or a consistent carer who can identify your need and participate in the administrative requirements of getting you to various appointments and seeing you through 
the requirements of these departments so that help can be delivered to you. But if your fundamental crisis is the absence of a functioning carer, if the very people who are harming you are your parents, then what happens is as a child, you end up being deprived of access in relation to all the care structures that are available and simple other things like no one to take you to the dentist, no one to register you with a GP, no one takes you to the opticians. And consequently, children more and more end up being disenfranchised and isolated when there isn't that functioning adult. And what we've done as a society is we've created this construct whereby we say either the child is living with family and therefore the assumption is that family is competent or the child is in care but actually in reality at any given time we only take 67,000 children into care and then in between there's this enormous gap where actually uh, many children are surviving their childhood for which we have no vocabulary, no construct, and no intervention. And it's not until the child becomes exceptionally challenged that we consider care, and even then we don't do that for older teenagers. So what do we have to do, and why do we have to have a change in our thinking? The strategy we adopt in relation to children is to conceptualize them as individuals who need to be skilled up for adulthood. So when you hear Michael Gove and people talking about their vision for childhood in Britain, it is always related to education and the acquisition of skills, as if childhood is some kind of a waiting room for adulthood, and it's only a matter of filling this empty vessel with the required skills and behavioral repertoire so that this individual can become an economically viable <coughs> individual. But the truth is that pre-skills acquisition, there is something else that children need to have in order for them to be able to use the educational and uh, other opportunities that might be available to them. But we haven't really talked about what this other thing is. And before I describe what this other thing is, I want to look at the philosophy we use with children who deviate from uh, the norm that we've set, whether they are criminally involved, whether they have antisocial behaviors, or whether they have other difficulties. The methodology we tend to favor is one of using sanctions and rewards. So we think if we punish a child for their bad behavior, or if we reward them for the good behavior, that they will then memorize the sanctions we've delivered, have enough calm to call upon that memory the next time they're going to do something bad, and then use that memory to prohibit themselves from doing the next bad thing. And we, in delivering this uh, reward and uh, sanction model, what we're doing is we're assuming that we're dealing with a very ordered brain that is going to interpret the structures of reward and punishment that we've applied and make good use of it in terms of getting back on track in their development. But the truth is that for a group of children, this model doesn't work because their brains don't work in that way. And that is what, in effect, I'd like to present very quickly to you, which is the sort of new paradigm in which we have to operate in order to reach the children who are described as hard to reach. The new paradigm, I would argue, has to be informed by the latest research that is emerging from the field of neurobiology. What's becoming evident is that we're now realizing that our brains are constantly in construction as a result of the experiences that we're being exposed to. Our genetics gives us a framework of development 
So my genes will say that I am not going to grow any wings and fly, but within the boundary of my genetic potential, let's say I have the potential for aggression and the potential for kindness, what happens is if my environment demands a lot of aggression, <coughs> that aspect of my gene that deals with aggression upregulates to adapt to the environment. And epigeneticists believe that potentially this change in gene expression can get passed on to the next generation as baseline genetic programming. But equally, if my environment is demanding tenderness, compassion, and care, then the reverse is possible. That aspect of my gene expression that deals with those things can get upregulated again. <coughs> and I've very much seen that in the kids that we work with. They arrive and they're slamming their heads into windows, they're picking bits of glass and cutting themselves. One of them used to lie on the tarmac and slam her forehead into the tarmac concrete uh, until it absolutely bled. And after years of taking care of them, you see an incredible change in these children's uh, capacities for violence. And the change one sees is not the disappearance of the capacity for violence, but that its expression isn't required so much. Whereas these children would engage in an act of violence every five minutes, you rarely see it unless that particular child is so cornered and terrorized that suddenly the early repertoire exhibits itself. So what, what, when you have children who are presenting with that level of challenge, you have to start thinking, What's the clinical intellectual property in there that's driving this form of disturbance? Because it's no good just saying these kids are morally flawed because that doesn't get us anywhere. And I, what I've noticed is to stick in the drug trade safely and obey its rules, you have to be able to understand boundaries and you have to be able to stick to rules. So it's not that these children don't have no capacity for boundaries or rules. It's that their, their framework has completely altered. So what, what is it that we need to understand? I would argue that these children primarily suffer from what's called dysregulated states. And what I mean by that is that they can't actually control their own energy and their own emotion. I remember when I first started in the railway arches, I interviewed 400 kids, all varying in age, and they kept saying to me, Camilla, I can't calm down, I can't effing calm down. And I used to go home and think, why do these kids constantly say they can't calm down? And then the other thing that the children explained is that when they were violent towards people or towards themselves, that they actually felt soothed. And I remember thinking, why is all this happening? So I decided to send someone to the British Library to get 500 clinical papers on the brain, and then I started reading them, and I realized that actually if all these scientists had got together, they would have been able to explain why these kids are behaving in this way, but no one had really pulled their research together, and I couldn't really find very much research on children in urban settings who'd been violated as a result of their environments. So we ended up generating a campaign called Peace of Mind, where we put together some of the best scientists in the country to do the brain research for us. And the findings that I'm about to share with you emanate from partly their research, but partly from what is available out there, that the early indications of this research are, and you know, we're formally announced the results, once the medical papers have been written and peer-reviewed. But the actual early indications are that the children's brains and physiological functioning have completely changed as a result of the violence that they're exposed to. There are two sets of children in this violence, the initiators 
who have endured significant harm in the family home and have already been violated as toddlers. And they present with the extreme violence. But then there are the imitators, the children who come from relatively well cared for backgrounds, who end up in the same public space as the initiators. Initially, the initiators attack these well cared for children because they can't bear the care that they're receiving and because they, the initiator has a compulsion to prove themselves as top dog because they've been so badly violated. They have a need to prove that now they're the violator because in being able to violate, the, the individual uh, understands themselves as being powerful and having potency. So what these initiators do, they attack these well-cared-for children. The well-cared-for children are baffled by the continuous attack and by the adult world's inability to step in and protect them. And what then happens is that the well-cared-for child starts tooling up and acquiring the disguise of a much more aggressive child in order to be able to equalize in power with the initiator and survive the initiator's attacks. And as one child put it to me, what began as an act of self-survival then took over my soul with such darkness, I didn't know myself anymore. And what you see is these children being exposed to extremes of violence at the hands of the drug dealers who force them to witness people being tortured, burnt with cigarettes, penetrated with objects. And what these adults are doing to all these children is saying to these children, don't even imagine that you can disobey my rules because this is the kind of harm I'm going to expose you to. And then they force these kids to carry out the torture and over a period of time push the child to a point where the child develops such disgust, self-hatred, and eventually an indistinguishable capacity to separate themselves from the violence that they generate and they're exposed to. It just becomes completely normal. If we're talking about being in neighborhoods where kids are tattooing a tear on the side of their faces to prove that they've killed someone, because if you have that tattoo, you are thought to be very dangerous. The more dangerous you are, the more you're likely to survive better in neighborhoods that feel abandoned by civil society structures. So when you have a child that is chronically exposed to this level of violence, you have a number of challenges. And the research is showing that the kids' neuronal pathways mimic those of war veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. Their stress levels, their physiological stress levels are off the scale. Therefore, the slightest disrespect or difficulty tips them over into an extreme physiological rage. It's not just a, a choice to be angry. It's devastating fragmentation of every aspect of self-control that these children endure. Then their capacity to read facial cues has completely altered with neutral faces appearing to them as if you're about to attack them. Their ability to tolerate the human glance has altered because when you look at them, they think you're thinking that they're disgusting at the mildest end or they think you're about to attack them. You're looking at them so that you can work out how to attack them. Consequently, these children's relationships with human beings has become toxic, menacing, and defensive in the extreme. And it's not because they are morally flawed, it's because they're appropriately adapted to the conditions into which they're born and the conditions of care or lack of it that they're surviving. So, I've brought you um, some pictures here to show you. And what I've done here is, this is the brain, sorry for anybody who's 
a wonderful scientist in the crowd. Any doctors, neuroscientists here? No one's going to put their hands up if you are here, but I'm going to keep this very simple so it's accessible to everyone. Bear in mind, everything I'm telling you is research now. We're at the beginnings of finding out more and more about the brain and the mind. So this science will evolve over a period of time. But for what it's worth, and in the short period that we have, these are some of the things that I want to share with you. I talked to you about self-regulation, the capacity to manage your emotion and your energy. You need the front part of your brain, and this is my sliced brain in half. You need the front part of your brain, your prefrontal cortex, to manage the emotional responses that come from deep inside your brain, the limbic system, that blue area. The front part of your brain develops as a result of the care that you've received on the whole. Literally, there are these spaghetti structures called neurons, and the more interaction you have, the more neuronal connections you get. And the quality of the interaction that you have determines what gets programmed as self-care into your brain. So all that cooing and tenderness that the maternal figure or the paternal figure is providing for their children literally gets programmed in there. I bet you the rituals you use when you're ill are very much the rituals that were used with you when you were a child and you were being taken care of. So your hot water bottle, your magazine, uh, whatever it is that you put your bed, yourself to bed with, are those rituals. That's internalized self-care. And the idea is that initially the child needs it externally because they can't do it for themselves. And then after a while, that becomes a personal repertoire that you can use to manage your own emotion and your own energy. So all that in the frontal lobe. Now to add a, a little challenge, the frontal lobe of all teenagers rewires <coughs> and becomes weakened in the teenage years. Hence the over-emotionality of some teenagers. And it's not until about early 30s that it really develops back up again. Okay, that middle part of the brain, the limbic system, is key to the type of disturbances that we see in children. Because what happens is that the child is chronically frightened as a toddler by whatever's happening around them, uh, the violence in the home and so on. The actual events, so let's say the child was attacked by a purple-haired man who shook the child kicked them, boxed them, and hurled the child against the wall. Before the purple-haired man arrives in the room, the child is hearing glass smashing, people screaming, and the child is in a nebulous state of terror. What's the terrible thing that's going to happen to me now? And in this nebulous state of terror, vast amounts of fright hormone are released that begin to dysregulate the emotional centers of the brain, the limbic system, and get the body and mind ready for emergency. But it's big fear. It has no beginning, middle, and end. The child doesn't know what's going to happen. It feels enormous, this fear. And then the perpetrator steps in, harms the child. Whilst the child is being harmed by the perpetrator, everything that perpetrator does gets memorized by the child. They might not be conscious of some of those memories, but nevertheless it gets memorized. So the sweat on his upper lip, the dilated eyes, the tone of the voice, the feel of the punch, because the cells of the body memorize uh, states. They don't have stories, but they memorize states. And what is making this memory mechanism so efficient is the over-availability of fright hormones. These fright hormones actually encapsulate the memory in its rigid detail. This is key to how subsequently these kids behave in a disturbed way. These memories are not processed. They're not modified. They're not subjected to time. They are really rigid. 
And then the fright hormone, once it's encapsulated this memory, delivers it as a memory and stores it in the limbic system, in the emotional centers of the brain. So the kids are banking traumatic memory, but they're also banking their desire for revenge. Because as that four-year-old stands there and thinks, I want to pull your eyes up, pull your hair up, I want to do to you what you're doing to me, but his limbs are too small and he can't do it, he memorizes the desire to do it, and that gets banked. Then on another level, the child begins to understand notions of power and develops aspirations that are perverse. Because what the child sees is that the violent individual commands the space. No one can stop him. No one steps in to intervene. People who might be around are ineffectual because the violence still goes ahead. And from that, the child learns that if you want to survive, you better have a substantial capacity for violence to ensure your own survival. And that sort of individualistic, self-centered, um, I'm responsible for my own survival. The kids say to me often, I'm a soldier, Camilla, as if they're entirely responsible for ensuring their own safety. All that is banked in those emotional centers of the brain and it festers there. At the point of trauma, some 400 learning genes are thought to switch off because the brain has to develop efficiencies to deal with survival. Anything nuanced or excess that is not necessary in the service of survival subsides. And then post-blow, when the child is against the walls and the perpetrators left the room, what you get is a collapse. You get a complete energetic collapse because paradoxically, the moment of violence is quite organizing for these kids because they've made a shift from a nebulous state of terror with no beginning, middle and end and what is it that's gonna happen to me to having a real understanding that at the point of blow, maybe they get a number of blows, maybe they're bleeding, they're harmed, but nevertheless, it's best to have the blow than to have nebulous terror. Because post blows, you get to recuperate and there is a resolution. The reason this is really important in the way these children end up behaving subsequently is because what gets programmed into their mechanism, both cellularly and at brain level, is this entire compulsion, a sort of agitated drive. They are constantly describing a state of revving up is the name that they use for it, as if agitation is building up, building up, building up. And I believe that agitation is primarily driven from the limbic system, i.e. these kids get revved up from the emotional centers of their brains because they have a diminished repertoire for self-calming. They can't use their own frontal lobe to come and calm themselves down. And what they get left with is seeking some kind of a resolution for this tension buildup that they've got. And what they know as resolution is some kind of a dramatic uh, contact, violent contact, because that's their experience. So they either generate fights uh, in which they get to hit other people, or they generate a situation where they get to physically harm themselves. And once they've achieved the extreme of behavior of some sort or another, post-extreme, what happens is the tension evacuates, it's got rid of, and then the children achieve a post-tension vacuousness, which they think is calm. To them, that is calm. So they end up the, with their daily functioning, not being able to rest, not knowing how to calm themselves down, having some kind of tension build up, seeking an evacuation strategy to get rid of this tension, getting a collapse, which they think is rest, and then going back to this cycle again.
And all that is happening because the limbic system and the physiological system is dysregulated as a result of poor care and overexposure to fright hormones and poor nutrition, dysregulated uh, glucose functioning as a result of trauma and lack of food, basically. Now, I'm going to show you the next picture. I hope I know how to operate these things. This is it. Oh, good. Some of you may have seen this, and some of you may not have. This is the brain of a three-year-old, uh, two three-year-olds. One is normal. The small one is one of extreme neglect. Now, bear in mind, this is someone who's had sensory deprivation, uh, exceptional levels of neglect, and so on. But the reason I'm showing you is because I want you to look at the black cavities in the middle and on the sides, because that's literally lack of brain structure availability by virtue of the deprivation that this child has been exposed to. I want you to look at the chili pepper structure in the middle there. Excuse me, there's a laser pointer and RF oh. clicker there if you want Where is it. it. Oh, here. Um, yeah, so backwards and forwards is for the slides. The, the red button is for a laser okay. pointer. Okay. Uh, we always knew that attachment was important, but we didn't quite understand why attachment was important. I mean, this is a leading country in terms of attachment theory. But what we're now understanding is that attachment and the availability of loving care results in a range of chemicals releasing themselves in the brain, including oxytocin. And these ranges of chemicals have the impact of lifting the mood, but also giving resilience at times of stress. So this is an experiment that shows some brains that were exposed to the chemical oxytocin that gets released in conditions of loving, and some brains that received placebo. And where you see the extra red activity is in the placebo brains when they were exposed to fearful, frightening scenes, i.e. those brains reacted more. But where the oxytocin has been administered, the level of reaction is much less, hence less red areas. And again, this is all very new. But we do know from old wives' tales that a bit of boxing and a bit of love sorts the kid out. Well, if you get the boxing in terms of expelling tension from the limbic system, and if you get the love in terms of the resilience that is provided in the brain so that there is greater tolerance 
for moments of stress, then I think those old wives' tales knew something that the neuroscientists are just articulating. De Bellis is a, a very amazing psychiatrist in the States. He works at Duke University. He's probably got the greatest portfolio of brain scans of kids who've been sexually and physically abused and generally maltreated. And his opinion is that this notion that this problem uh, cannot be solved past two, you know, there's a myth that before two you have all your brain development and then after that the rest of it is disaster. He's a firm believer that actually there's a second opportunity at giving the brain some form of development and recovery in adolescence, provided the adolescent is exposed to the same levels of intensive care that a toddler would be exposed to, in effect a reparenting of adolescence. This is the problem. It's locking the brain and the adrenal glands into a loop i.e. neither of them give each other a break. Your adrenal glands are on top of your kidneys, they release fright hormones. In conditions of fright, your brain tells your adrenal glands it's an emergency, produce some of that chemical so that we can run or fight. And then when that chemical is produced, the brain goes into an emergency and says it's an emergency, we can't do anything subtle, uh, we just need to deal with threat all the time. And this is what the kids are stuck in. Even if you take them out of those environments and you give them careful, loving care, it's a good six months before their body and their brain can get out of this loop. And that's why people often give up these children early, because they think everything I'm doing for them isn't working. Well, the answer is you're not putting enough risk in place because they need that risk initially and they need to be weaned off that risk on your terms but you can't just put them in a calm environment because what you get is a mismatch between their uh, mental and biological state and your calm state. And what these children then do is think of something really exaggerated and dangerous to arouse you up to their level so that they sort of get a match and then they know where they are. Look at this neurons. That's the spaghetti structure I was telling you about. If you look at the top, first of all, in connections, you'll see lots of neurons connected to each other. That's the sort of communication network, if you like. And if you look at the grey picture of the top neurons, you'll see tiny little branches coming off it, which is really in effect showing the, the enhanced capacity of this neuron for interconnection. And then come down and look at the neuron structures below and what you have is toxic stress actually diminishing connections and structures of the neuronal fibers. I'm not going to do, go into detail about this, but basically this is research that is showing that in antisocial behavior individuals, psychopathic individuals, there is a lower functioning of the frontal lobe, which is the area that I was talking to you about that is required to control and manage emotional impulses. I'm racing through so that you can all go. This is the answer so far. Basically, if dysregulation is the problem of these children, and if they have diminished neurophysiological development, what we need to put in place is a reparenting opportunity so that these children can catch up in neurodevelopmental functioning, but also that we are dealing with an intervention that tackles both their physiological dysregulated states, but also their emotionally impoverished constructs and their cognitive difficulties and their interpersonal difficulties. So over the years, what we did at Kids Company is develop the model according to what the kids were telling us was needed. So what our workers work to is this model, which is basically trying initially to make the children safe, hence the self-preservation bit, by addressing everything that makes them feel insecure as much as possible so that the need for fright 
hormone secretion is diminished. Then we need to get them to develop substantial attachment relationships, either with people around them who can provide them with care, or with our staff, so that we can rebuild the frontal lobe's capacity to deliver care and to have a pro-social attitude and be able to ascertain where they're at and what they need to do and the other people's point of view and so on. This is not something you can teach in a didactic lesson. It has to be experientially delivered because the children need to experience it to pick it up at neuronal and physiological levels. We're using things like massage, reflexology, osteopathy, regular meals, constant contact on the phone with the kids, texting, anything that promotes the feeling of being thought about, being cared for, uh, having a secure base and so on. In fact, research shows the kids got attached to our building and its furnishing, furnishing well before they got attached to the people. So actually the building itself can act like a mother brick for the kids. And then when we've achieved the capacity for self-regulation to a great extent, you have to give these children a sense of a future, but it's not as simple as saying, go and get your GCSEs and you'll get a mortgage, because they have intrinsically a fatalistic notion of the world. They've been so violated that they don't buy into the delusions of order by which a lot of us operate. So consequently, you have to redesign alongside them a meaning framework that is relevant to them and brings out in them notions of power and potency that are not about aggression, but that they're about participation in society, contributing to society, because fundamentally these children need to operate from a position of strength, otherwise they don't feel safe. And what you need to do is find those heroic pathways for them in a way that is practical, achievable, and nevertheless uh, reframed around their life experiences. So whether that's you know participating in our think tank, uh, doing art, making films about their life circumstances, and so on, there's a need to do that journey until they feel fully embedded in mainstream society and they don't feel that they need to constantly process what's happened to them and uh, kind of reframe it all the time. And that's where we look at getting the kids into jobs and employment. And finally, I want to show you the living conditions of the children. So this is basically what happens. A child arrives off the street, gets uh, an assessment, and then we meet all their needs, and this is a sort of pathway. By the way, they don't leave in the sense that they often need us as a substitute family environment, but neither are they grateful or appreciative of what we've done. Very few of them can sustain that feeling, because to be grateful, you have to hold in your head a memory of the way you were before. And actually, many of these kids need for dignity doesn't allow them to hold on to that memory. So they often rewrite their histories and they rewrite what you've done for them because they don't want to be indebted in any way because when they feel indebted, then they feel weakened. And as workers, we have to accept that the capacity for appreciation may not always be there and yet continue and do the work. This is our volunteering model. We have 11,000 volunteers who contribute to us every year. We've got lots of students coming on placement from a variety of clinical settings, and we've become a main placement experience for people. And in that way, uh, both the children and the workers benefit. And these are the living conditions we find the children in. This is the best one. So it's concrete on the floor. And when you, what you see in pink is the transformation that we affect using volunteers. So at the very least, we're giving these children a safe bedroom. And we go and check that this is being kept up. This is the bed of a two-year-old. Five children were living in this house. Social services visited 
five years ago, told the mother to clean up and never came back because it didn't meet their thresholds. And yet the mother had very severe depression and she really needed that help. And those children grew up in this house for five years. This was their food cupboard in the kitchen. This is where the food was kept. That's it. So, in conclusion, really quickly, there are a group of children for whom we have to think differently. We need to exercise moral courage as political leaders, clinical leaders, to conceptualize a new model of care that could be complementary to social services and child mental health, but embraces the reality of large numbers of children potentially not having a functioning parent in their lives and not being able to be in care, because even being in care might be too disturbing. We need to understand that it's not six weeks of cognitive therapy that's going to affect the change. It's a reparenting model, holistically delivered, to address challenges across education, social care, mental and physical health, and that the new type of worker has to have an understanding of this dynamic in order to help this type of child achieve the self-regulation capacities that they need to genuinely be able to make use of opportunities that society provides. The change isn't happening because our politicians don't have the commitment to the most disturbed kids. The children don't vote. They can't hold anyone accountable. They don't write policy papers. They can't describe the dysfunctions that they're facing in our agencies. And consequently, they're conveniently brushed under the carpet. It's only when the voter realizes how bad the situation is, and also realizes that there is a systemic problem here. The more disturbed children we have, whose needs are not being met, the more our well-cared-for children will have to become disturbed to survive them. And that is the type of society that we're allowing to flourish in our ghettos, which is a sort of viral spreading of violence, initially amongst kids, and then eventually it will come to well-cared-for neighborhoods. I believe the challenge of profoundly disturbed children is a greater risk to our well-being than people perceive climate change to be. But it's just that the climate change lobby rightly are powerful and the children's lobby sadly are dispossessed. Thank you very much.